welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. Vaigurjika Khalsa Vaigurjiki Fateh. Welcome to our series commemorating Vaivir Singh and his enchanting story written about Rana Surat Singh. Hosting the series will be myself, Kiranjot Kaur, the associate editor here at Sikri, and Inni Kaur, the creative director at Sikri, as well as the translator of Vaivir Singh's work. Rana Surat Singh is the tale of an estranged widow, Rani Raj Kaur, who's pining for her late husband. Within the story, Paivir Singh takes us all on a journey from the temporal realm of spousal longing into the depths of a mystical relationship with the divine. We become Rani Rajkor by hearing about her intense desire to meet her king or her late husband Rana Surat Singh. Her story begins with Satsang, a community of inspired beings, and so it makes sense for us to begin the podcast series here as well. Bhaivir Singh's emphasis on community in this story is perhaps a reflection on the value he places on the larger Sikh community, and perhaps his need to reinvigorate Sikh paradigms with the same love-filled devotion one experiences in the presence of the satsang. We too are building and living in a community with these podcasts. By the end, we as the audience really hope to identify with Rani Rajkor and begin to realize our own spiritual journeys in this tale. By Veer Singh's artful prose and elegant ability to weave this mystical story is something that might change us forever and maybe even ignite a light so bright that we too transform, just as Rani Rajkor does. Join our journeys as we explore the intricacies of the Rani's transformation from lover to gurmukh or guru-inspired being in this podcast series. A series that we hope will detail our own reflective silences and mind-opening realizations as we immerse ourselves into Bhaivir Singh's world of Sikhi, hope, and resilience. This podcast begins when the Rani enters Satsang, which is a community of inspired beings. So I thought it would be fitting that we begin our journey here as well. Iniji, if you can, in a nutshell, tell us about your connection to this story and a bit more about it, because I'm sure um, if our, I don't think our listeners have had the chance to read this beautiful piece of literature yet um, that you have translated on the Sikri website. So, Kiran Jodh, firstly, thank you for hosting this podcast. I mean, this Arana Sarut thing is... Uh, a book which is very important to me. And also, it is the 150th anniversary of Bhai Sabhaibir Singh, who I call as Pitaji. So this is uh, an incredible celebratory moment for me personally. So you ask my connection with the book. Well, this book was sitting on my table for I don't know how many years, and I didn't want to touch it because it's 14,000 plus lines of dense poetry. And I knew at some point I would, but um, I wasn't ready yet. And then a couple of years back, I decided to take it with me into my bedroom. And every night I read it there. I think every night I cried, my pillow was wet. So what is this poem about? It begins with uh, the death of a hero, Rana. <clears throat> Surat Singh, forgive me, I am recuperating from long COVID, so the voice isn't where it's supposed to be. 
But because it is the 150th anniversary, I wanted to do these podcast series um, in that commemoration. So like I was saying, um, it begins with the death of Rana Surat Singh and the the profound shattering effect that it has on his young widow, the Rani, Rajkor. So from the very, very beginning, we are fully made aware that the Rani's love for the Rana was at a physical level, like all loves. You know, you begin with the physical. And she was so immersed in her love for the Rana that she was actually blinded to his enlightened self. She could not see him in any other way except her husband. She could not see his inner beauty, his divinity. Now, as much as the Rana wanted her to be part of his spiritual journey, the Rani couldn't do it. She just was so in love with him. So as we get immersed in this book, we witness after the Rana's death, we witness how the Rani gets transformed of her physical yearnings into the spiritual ones. And through this book, in this book, we actually journey through the various stages of her inner development, which really are the five khands, the realm of principle, dharam. Then she moves into the realm of knowledge, gyan. Then she moves into the realm of effort, which is saram. Then she goes into karam, which is grace. And then sachkhand. So this stage really is a process of, if you look, if I step back and look at it, it really is a journey of becoming a gurmukh, which is being guru-oriented. And in this journey, there is an individual who we call, who she calls a sage, a gurmukh, a guru-inspired being. Um, She gets introduced to him. And he tells her about this path, which he calls the love path. And it is her intense longing to want to be with the Rana. And the only way she can be with him is to walk on this path. And this longing drives her to walk on this path and do and go through all what she goes through. Wow, that's quite fascinating the way that you've outlined that. Inichi, can you expand a little bit about what this longing actually is? I mean, why do you think Bhavir Singh wrote a story that begins in this way? Huh. Everything begins with the longing. If there is no longing, what we call kitsch, nothing happens. Go back to Sodi Mahival, Heer Ranja, Lela Majnu. Their love, there was a kitsch, there was a pull. That longing to be together was so intense that they went through what they went through. Right? Hence, this longing is what Pai Gurdas celebrates. He says, love the Guru, love as they have loved. They didn't look at that this was easy. They didn't, they were apart from each other for years. 
It didn't matter. Their love never waved. So longing begins either with a feeling there's something missing, there's a sense of separation, or wanting something really intense. And the journey of longing is, it at, in the initial stages, it's very intense in the sense it's like a burning within you that you just need it. It consumes you. And then this longing becomes a sweet longing where it's long, it doesn't really matter whether you get to the end goal that longing itself is the goal because without that longing you would be dead it's not what life is not worth living because in that sweet longing there is a submission there is an acceptance and Pavir Singh Petaji in one of his poems when he writes about the river, he said, whether Jamuna, which is the river, is longing for Guru Gobind Singh Sahib, the Dasme Pacha, who bathed in him, in her, and then she goes searching for him. And she comes back and she says, it doesn't really matter whether I will see him or not, or not ever again, but I will live in this longing for I want no one else. That is that longing. To live in that longing without a desire for wanting anything else. And this is that type of longing, which is very much present in the Guru Granth Sahib, which is what, what is spoken about, which is written, that you, that longing is thing that moves you. And this is that longing, that's why Pai Veer Singh, at least in my opinion, begins with it, which, which she goes through so much and she ends up at a, in a hidden cave where the Sangat gathers in satsang as the political climate of that time period is not favorable to the Sikhs. Wow, that's a, a, quite a profound and powerful way to describe the emotion like longing. Um, it doesn't even sound like an emotion at that point. It just takes over. It becomes you. Um, and that's, and that's great. Um, but you know, I'm still wondering, like, why was this beautiful, rich, you know, powerful woman going into this congregation? Like, what, what was it that she thought she was going to get from meeting this group of people, the satsang? Because in terms of worldly things, Iniji, maybe you can help me understand that Aniji was not lacking anything. And like maybe she knew that there was something to be gained from going into the satsang. Hmm. So before I answer that question, Kiran, what is your understanding of satsang? You know? You know, Iniji. For me, satsang has a very personal significance. So for me, it's always kind of meant refuge. And so like when I say refuge, I mean, it, it, satsang has always felt like a safe space because I, I usually feel so hugged by the community when I'm sitting at the gordora or making langar boxes for people, which me and my family do sometimes. 
you know, so to me, it's being embraced by a strong community with like, like-minded values, right? For like, I think that like, you're going to Guru Nanak Sahib's house, uh, or you're doing what Guru Nanak Sahib would want you to do. And to me as a Sikh, that means like, you're speaking kindly with one another, you're loving each other, you're being of service to one another. And I really do think like a lot of Sikhs can relate to this in some shape or form. You know, like whether it's like Sikhs going out for seva initiatives with their local gordoras or just, you know, gathering for a family member's spot. We are in satsang when we are in the places that we feel like accepted, like when we're in community. But I have to be like completely transparent here when I say that like when I read the Rani's story, it changed, it like completely changed a lot of my preconceived notions about satsang. Because like when I was reading it seems like she's coming in to satsang with like this deep sense of humility, like with folded hands, as Bhaivir Singh um, describes, tear-filled eyes. Her head is bowed and she is showing this intense need and desire, like you said, longing for her loved one. And to, and to me, that's like very different from how I might approach satsang. You know, and, and I want to know, like, do you understand it in this way, too? Or did you experience it, like, differently than me when you were translating? Hmm. <clears throat> so let's break down the word satsangat, right? Let's break down the word sangat first. What is sangat? Sang yeah. is communion, the community. It's that Buddhist idea of gathering. And gat is movement. So where people come together to move something, or another way could be when we come together to move an agenda, that is Sangha, right? And then when you add adjectives in front of the Sangha, like Satsangha, Satsangat, they become the qualifiers like truth, the congregation of, you know, where you are moving towards truth. Sad is, well, sad in the Guru Granth Sahib, I won't go into the details of singular and plural, but when sad is used in the singular, it's for guru, right? When it's plural, that means it is for the congregation, and that's for our purpose, because this is that congregation. So when we understand that this is a community, so now if you you know, you shared what you shared was was lovely about sat about satsangat. What? But is that community moving towards something? You know, we use these words in today's vocabulary. In a in a sense that they have been watered down. And this word used in the context of the book is in its. And it's in its essence. So it's important to understand why Paivir Singh writes that to enter into satsang has to be earned. You know, we hear these, these words that when you are in a group in, in satsang, your progress or you think differently. Why is that? Because everyone in that satsang is actually at that level where they have, um, it's a meeting of like-minded people whose foundation is based on truth, not on your truth or my truth or their truth, 
This is the truth with that capital T. There is that firm principle and foundation. So when you are in the company of these individuals, they have already overcome or they have already risen above the petty things. And that's why you aspire to be like them. It's an aspiration that to be in that satsang, to be with those individuals, so that you are surrounded by this, if I call it in in today's parlance, this energy that can energize you and bring out your divinity. And then Paivir Singh writes that this satsang is earned, the privilege to be in the satsang. But how do you earn it? And he says, and he also shares that the first step towards towards satsang is you coming to this group, you wanting to be in this group is one thing, but then you recognizing it. And how do you get there? Seva is that first step. So to enter into satsang, which seva is one of the principles of, of Sikhi, is satsang. Wow, you've really just um, helped me re like rethink about what satsang is, and you know, kind of brought back that spiritual significance that maybe I was missing, you know, and maybe using the word so so loosely. And Anisha, you you talk about seva, and I think that you know, again, my understanding of seva has always been in line with what I. I think a lot of us in the Sikh community might understand as selfless service, right? So like doing community work without expecting anything in our, in return. And for me, I think seva is like in our DNA, right? There's no expectations. We just serve because that's the path Guru Nanak Sahib has laid out for us. And the Rani's journey with seva, you know, because this is the first step, I feel like it's a lot deeper because there's a lot more layers there. She's a Rani. She has people doing things for her. And it doesn't seem like she's doing it because she's a socialite or philanthropist either. But she is going into the satsang and now she is going, she's performing deeds, right? And it makes me think, like my mind just goes there, like, is she doing this because she wants to gain something? Because if that's the case, then... Is it really service? Is it truly selfless service if it's being done for some sort of gain? Because, you know, the other day, like my, my mother was just um, telling me of an old Punjabi Kahavat. Um, and she said, do seva and you will receive meva, the koya or other w- words like the fruits of your labor. Right. And I feel like the seva concept that's visible here in um, the Rani's story is just really different. And am I wrong to think that it's different? Well, you know, you you talked about, um, I do want to say, I mean, you said that we don't expect anything in return. It's in our DNA. To a certain extent, yes. There is, there is still something there within us that there is an expectation, a recognition that we are part of that Sangat. Right here in this story, the Rani hides. She has to go through great, great. uh, She sneaks out of the palace at night to go 
to this cave. She performs whatever she performs the savor because her husband was a sick. She knows there is something here, <clears throat> though she doesn't know what it is, right? But she knows that this group of people will help her in her journey, in her understanding, in whatever it is. And remember that longing, and for that, she will do anything. So I don't think she was doing it as Seva. She was doing it really for that longing. Can somebody guide me that I can reach my husband or I can reach that? And when she comes here, the Gurmukh, that enlightened being, the person who is telling her, he says, you know, that the first step um, is about um, seva. You know, remember I had spoken to, uh, earlier that the Gurmukh has, was, has said that this was the love path, that the path that he was going to share with her was, was, was what he called the love path. So now I'm going to tell you what service is, according to Paivir Singh, the way he's written it. He says, the foundation of love sits in service, in seva. Now let's just pause and think of that, about that for a moment. Seva, we know, is the basic principle in Zikki. Are we doing seva based on love? Is that the way, why? Is that the way we're performing every seva? There can be no thought of any gain and no transaction must enter into our seva, right? But we still think, oh, I'm going to do this because I, I want to do it. it. It's good for me. It'll be closer for me to get to X, Y, or Z. Or maybe I will do enough and I will get an award. You know, whatever it is, it look good on my resume. It look good on my college applications. Where have you volunteered? These are all things that enter us. But as love, the first step of true seva, of seva is where the foundation is love. And when love is the foundation, in love there is no receiving, it's only giving. And as you undertake the seva, which is based on love, so what happens then is that your thinking the Rani, the, and this is what the Gurmukh is telling you, that your thinking will become right. Your principle, the principles of the faith, the principles with a capital P, <clears throat> become the foundation. When the principles become the foundation of your seva, of your love, that whatever you do, you take on your, you undertake your responsibilities from that point of view, truthfully. You know, it becomes a part of you. Seva is not something separate. Seva is very much you become Seva. And in this process of Seva is, you know, there are stages of Simran where you are in Seva, which is based on love, which is flowing from love. You are now thinking and your actions are from the principles, based on the principles, then there is that Simran state, that remembrance, and the rising above ego, and there is a stage of contentment, 
also the stage where you are no longer a slave to your emotions. You know, these are all the stages which have been described in the chapter. And I'm sure the audience, you know, for those who want to delve into will read it. But it really is going, taking you, Seva takes you from the journey of doing the Seva based on love, living in principle, dharam, living in that world, in that realm of dharam, where everything is done from that angle. And as that becomes firmer, you enter into knowledge. I, when I say knowledge, I mean gyan. And this is not information. Today, we have way too much information, but not knowledge. Knowledge is very different. When you sit with a person of knowledge, even their silence speaks volumes. That is the knowledge. Because there is something which you have attained, which has come from love, which has come from living in principle, come from knowledge, right? And that knowledge then chisels you, chisels your consciousness. Because now you've gone through these stages. And then you make every effort, not only to do what is right, but it is your thinking even your every thought is that's when that your consciousness gets chiseled. And then you feel the grace. Grace is always present. Always. But do we feel it? And the last one is actually um, Sachkhand, which is living in Hukam, which is divine will. There's no tension within us. Uh, we all know if we come to an understanding that everything that happens is within that hukam, within that cosmic law, and that's that stage of Sachkhand. So basically, Seva takes you through these stages, and it is based out of based on love. So now I ask you, you know, is that the Seva you were talking about? Because this is the Seva in the book. And that's why you said the seva was different, because it takes you to such kind. Wow! Yeah, like it—it's it, definitely different. Um, and I could hear—I I could just listen to you for hours, you know, describing all of these realms and concepts that I thought I knew, and now I'm—I'm I'm really coming to the realization that I know very little, because I always thought of such kind as this far away place kind of like the Abrahamic idea right of like heaven and I remember you know when my grandfather passed away last year and and for me he was a great Gurmukh and everyone kept saying at the Gurdwara he, they kept saying he is such kind of Asi he is destined for such kind and that gave my heart a lot of peace because I didn't even know you know the extent of what was being said but something about it gave my heart a lot of peace and I live with that peace. I'm I'm satisfied with that peace. And, you know, that was enough for me. He, you know, thinking that he was somewhere far away from the turmoil of this world gave my heart a lot of, you know, peace. But for Donnie, I don't think that's enough. You know, it doesn't seem like she's satisfied with that. 
where her husband is. And it really makes me question what the Rani is going through when she's told that her late husband is in such kind. Because she wants to be with him. She has this longing, like you, like you said. There's a very intense need for her. So, I, Iniji, I want to know what Bhaivir Singh is trying to tell us about the nature of Sachkhand. Because I'm, you know, I, I feel like I just don't know, but the word is so, usely, so loosely used. Yeah. And that's, and that's the tragedy to a certain extent, that we use these words so casually without really going into the depth of the words and what they mean. And what I'm sharing with you is not that I know this knowledge from, I'm just sharing what is written in the book. Um, you know, what Paivir Singh, what Pida has said, what Pidaji has written. And for me, it made a lot of sense because like you, you know, the Khans seemed far away places that I couldn't relate to it. But after having read this book, it made it very real that in maybe a split second or, or, or even a minute, I could be possibly in all five at the same time. And that was very liberating. Because once I, once I felt it, understanding is one thing, it is feeling it. So such kind is actually, yes, it is in the cosmos, in the realm, but such kind is also in the body. When we live with the Guru, with the presence, with the Kyunkar, with the divine, when we feel that presence, we are living in such kind. So such kind is within each of us. We need to get to that place. We need to feel that place. And we too are in such kind, the such kind around us, the cosmos. Can we look at that beauty 24 seven? Can we appreciate everything around us 24 seven and live in that hukam? That is such kind as well. However, this is not quite like other countries. Like it's, it's a realm. Its width and distance cannot be measured. You know, there is no um, form or color, nor is it a part of nature. It is beyond that because all realms, all cosmos, all time, distance, everything is part of it. If you can imagine that, it is beyond description, beyond comparison, and it cannot. It just simply cannot be put into words. It is a spiritual play. Whatever examples anyone gives you, it will fall short. And I say that because that's what Guru Sahib, the first Pacha, wrote in the 37th body of the Japji. Their Pacha tells us that this state is as hard as iron to describe. But for those who choose to walk this path, for them, this is a game of love. You know, if you read the 37th body, is 
that there is no end, there is no limit, but this state cannot be described. So how can you and I describe something which Bacha is saying is hard to describe as hard as iron? There is that acceptance, there is that submission, that is a feeling, there's a vastness, there is a contentment, there is no tension. When that is an individual comes into it, that is such kind. You know, if you look at the Abrahamic faith, we say heaven and hell are a state of mind. When you are in turmoil, you are in hell. And when you are serene and ser- you know and content, that is heaven. So in that context, that heaven is such kind. Can we be in such kind 24-7? That's the question. Yeah. And yeah. it's 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 quite humbling to to realize that we are all a part of this vast spiritual play. Um and and when you talk about love, you know, I'm starting to to get the sense that I made a really big miscalculation when I was reading Ronnie Dodgecore's story because I thought to myself, she's in pain because she's engrossed in Maya or worldly illusions, you know, and her love is causing her pain, right? She's she needs to let go of this thing that's hurting her, you know. And I mean, the context of the story as we know it is that she's being told to forget her husband and she can't let go, which is causing heaps of distress. And now I'm wondering, like, if the entire world is telling you to let go, right, what does it mean when you don't? Because the normal human inclination, as far as I'm concerned, is to let go of something that's causing you this much pain, but she isn't letting go this longing she's sticking to, you know, and call it simplistic, but I'm thinking that her love is just on a whole different playing field here. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and today what you said was beautiful. What you said that, yes, the entire world is against her, telling her to forget her love. Even her mother is telling her to forget. And yet she doesn't because there's something there that she wants, she sees, that was that she had missed. What is that love of that good for the guru that you will that you will um, through the rain, through the storms, you will go to see the guru? It doesn't really matter. What is that love that you will fight a hundred thousand people with one with one sword, Kirpan? What is that love? It's different, right? In today's world, you know, we've been talking about words that we use loosely, as you put it. We've become very casual with the word love. In my understanding, in my, um, what I see is, Today, what we call love is actually a transaction. Because in love, there are no demands, there are no wants. Love is just giving. Love is never taking. 
Love is never expecting. I know it's hard, believe me, to for people to hear that. But in love, there is none. For that is love. You love, love just flows out of you. You do not have a choice. It is flowing. Regardless of who it is or what it is, whether your love is reciprocated never comes up. Think about it. You go to the Gurdwara, you say you love your Guru, you go to the Gurdwara, yet there is an expectation that Guru will look after you. There is an expectation that your parents will look after you. The parents have an expectation the children will look after you. The spouses, in relationship, there's an expectation that someone will do something for them. Right? What if you thought about there was no expectation? You just loved. It would be a different world. But when we say we want X, Y, and Z in that relationship, we want it to be equal, we define our roles, or this is, I will do this for you, Guru. I want this, this, and this, and if I get it, I'll do X number of account parts. I will do this, I will go on this yatra, I will do this much seva, whatever it is. Is that love? No, that's a transaction. In a relationship, when you say, I'll put in 50% and you put in 50%, is that love? No, it's a transaction. It is not love. Love is, is not dependent on anything. Love is. It becomes so embedded in your consciousness that it becomes a part of you and that you have no choice but to love. You know, they say that lovers take on the color of their love. Why is that? Because they are so immersed in it. That's all what they can think about is their love. And I know you said that you thought that she's immersed in Maya because you've read part of the story. But she's wanting something much more. She knows her husband is no longer, but she wants a glimpse of him. She wants to be with him. And it's not the that she wants to die. She wants to feel his presence. And the journey for her to feel his, her, his presence and to be with him, what the Gurmuk, what that sage is telling her, is that she has to become like him. And he was the embodiment of love. He performed all his duties. On the battlefield he died in Simran. He was immersed. And she herself knows that he was enlightened. She saw. She knew about his divinity, but she refused to accept his divinity because she was at that level of a human, wanting the physical side and being with him and not wanting to put in the effort for what he wanted. So love is, 
is a very powerful emotion. Love is something that transforms you. For love, you will do anything and everything and change yourself as well. And in the only time you bow, truly bow, is in front of love. And when love gets so embedded in your consciousness and it becomes a part of your DNA, it travels with you for centuries, it is with you, it is never lost. It is part of you, it is like your breath. That is the love that Pibir Singh is showing us, that in a marriage, you can have that love. But this story is much more than just a worldly love. You know, he was asked by his brother, Dr. Balbir Singh, why did you, you know, who was Rana Surat Singh? And why did he write this story? And he said that the nation was widowed, Punjab was widowed after the death of Maharaja Dilip Singh. <clears throat> A lot of superstition has entered the Panth. We were lost. And he, he needed to create Rana Surat Singh as a figure on how to live, to be inspired, to inspire people how to live. So while this is a, a journey of, of a being, I don't even want to use the word woman. It really is a journey of a seeker wanting to become a Gurmukh. If you look at the story in that light, it becomes much more vast. If we look at it just as a woman's story, we've made it very small. But love is, is everything. And seva begins, the foundation of seva is love. Wow. There is just so much here. And I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and only scratch the surface, you know, and which is why I think there's such a need for this series as well, because we get to dive in. And, you know, I really hope that we all try in our personal lives to maybe move away from this transactional kind of love and deeper into this love that is, is flowing and ultimately into this kind of love that is liberating. Right. So thank you so much, Iniji, and thank you all for joining us today. There were some beautiful exchanges between Iniji and I, and I truly hope that our listeners are feeling the same tantalizing and uplifting sentiments that I am right now. I'm, I'm looking so forward to our next podcast where we will speak about Isnan or a cleansing. And I can assure our listeners at this point that I have never heard or read anyone speak about Isnan the way that it is shared in this incredible story written by Bhai Veer Singh. And, and before we go, I, 
I do want to mention that we will be doing this regularly where we are hosting these podcasts with Inigi. So please feel free to send me your thoughts and maybe the ways in which the story is softening you or any feedback you might have as we all continue to walk on this journey. My email is getinjolt.core at sikri.org and please, please reach out um, with your, your comments and any feedback. And thank you all and we look forward to hosting the next podcast in this series. Thank you, Kiran, and thank you to our uh, listeners and our audience. It's been a wonderful time sharing this with you, you know, something so close to my heart. And one never knows what comes out when, you know, you ask the questions. So thank you for asking those thoughtful questions and also sharing about your grandfather. It meant a lot. Thank you so much, Aniji. Until next time. <laughs> You are listening to SickCast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.